The Rural Health Voice, Episode 47, Vaccines and Conspiracy Theories. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play it in our local communities. Why do some people have big concerns about vaccinations? Anna Muldoon joined me to discuss the anti-vax movement and its implications for addressing COVID. Well, welcome, Anna. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to have on the show. Um, you know, I invited you because you are a contributing author to a book that's due to come out soon. Actually, by the time this airs, it might be out already. But the book is called COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. Tell me a little bit about the book as a whole. So the book grew out of the collective concern of the authors around conspiracy theories that were spinning up in the early days, back when we called it the novel coronavirus, before it even had a disease name. Um, and we all saw connections between the things we were hearing about what is now COVID-19 and older conspiracy theories that we had all worked on or rumors we were hearing in our own communities. And so the book was really an attempt to pin down a particular set of those and a moment in time in the ever-evolving world of COVID-19 conspiracy and talk about the history, how they connect to older or longer running narratives and try to help people understand what they're about, why they're important, and how they relate to things that have gone on throughout history. So why were you interested in being part of the book's creation? So ironically, in November of 2019, I had proposed to write a dissertation about conspiracy theories around infectious disease and had been doing that work mostly focused on the 19th century, actually. Um, and so, of course, coronavirus destroyed all of my plans to spend this year primarily in archives looking at documents. And I started looking at what things were emerging around COVID-19 as it became a much more public issue. And I got pulled into the public health response, which is my former career before I went to graduate school. And so my world sort of collided in COVID-19. Uh, and I became somewhat obsessed with all of these ideas and narratives and how they related to the work I was doing before. And a big part of your contribution to the book is looking at people who don't believe in vaccines and why. Mm -hmm. Flu season is upon us. And <laughs> right. I went and got my flu shot just like I do every year. But many people don't. Why not? So I think particularly around flu shots, people are really used to flu. And the average 30,000 deaths a year kind of fade out of consciousness because it's every year. And so I think more people than most of us realize 
just assume that that's what flu does and aren't very worried about it. Um, I think there is also a lot of general hesitation about vaccines, which obviously you know, and that spills over into flu vaccines. And I think that there's a lot of misinterpretation of the purpose of flu vaccines, their efficacy, and why why and when to get them. Now, growing up, I considered childhood vaccinations to be just, you know, a part, normal part of life. I hadn't really heard anything about people opposing vaccines until the rise of social media. Uh, but apparently, I was in a bit of a bubble. What's some of the history behind the anti-vax movement? So, the an- anti-vaccine movements are very old. Um in the United States, pretty much the minute Cotton Mather learned about inoculation from his slave Onesimus in the 1720-ish, um, it's a little unclear when exactly Onesimus told him, there was resistance to this idea. Um, the idea of intentionally introducing a disease to the human body was always controversial, uh, particularly in, in the United States. And so pretty much for as long as inoculation and later vaccination have been around, there have been people who are concerned about their safety, concerned about the social impacts, and who don't think that they should get them. It's sort of a permanent state and one that we always have to negotiate through conversation and communication with the people who are concerned. So anytime objections to vaccines come up, I hear people my mother's age make comments along the line of, you know, obviously these people don't remember polio. (laughs) With the success of, you know, the polio vaccine and other types of vaccines, encourage more people to get vaccinated and make sure their children are vaccinated? Um. So it's interesting. My mother says exactly the same thing. um, And my grandmother did too. They They were always shocked when people they knew said they didn't think that we should vaccinate kids because they both had measles um, at the same time, actually. It was not a it was not a good month. Um, And they both had many childhood diseases. Thankfully, neither of them had polio, but they knew people who did. Um, And so they were very intensely pro-vaccination. I think that one of the things that is true is that we have lost some of our fear of those diseases because we see them so rarely. Um, You know, whooping cough and polio in particular, I think the vaccines have been so successful that in some ways we've forgotten that the diseases are very frightening diseases. And that makes it easier to be very focused on whether or not we should get the vaccine. And I mentioned social media earlier. 
A comment you made in the book is that online platforms are not known as places for reasonable and nuanced discussion. <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly forums such as Facebook and Twitter have people who are intentionally trying to spread bad information. But how much nuance do you need to demonstrate the safety and effectiveness of a vaccine? <laughs> so, yeah, I think social media can be an incredibly powerful tool for connecting people across space. Um, but it can, it is also not a great place for really nuanced discussion about anything, really. Um, but complicated health issues in particular. I think that once someone is convinced that vaccines are dangerous, changing their minds in a space like social media is just going to be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, our review processes for vaccines are intense. Yes, even the rapid review for the COVID vaccines. And the data is public. It's out there. Many people look at it. Many people discuss it before the vaccines are generally on the market. Um, most doctors are really well educated in the safety and efficacy of the vaccines that they give. But it's very difficult to get those messages across in both a clear way and in a caring way on social media. Um, we all we all tend to dig in our heels and dig into our positions and not really listen to people when they're talking on social media. And I, I think it's much easier to have those discussions in person. Some social media platforms have been responding by removing posts that have had bad public health information. Do you think that helps or hurts the anti-vax movement? Um, I think that it is useful to remove clear misinformation for public health purposes because it reduces the number of people who see it and don't know it's not true. I think that many bigwigs in anti-vax movements have gotten a lot of publicity inside their existing communities by having videos or tweets or Facebook posts or pages taken down. But it reduces the number of people who stumble on that information by accident. Uh, you have to look for it a lot harder if it's removed from the more mainstream platforms. And I think that, that it, it prevents people from finding it accidentally who don't have context for who the person is or why the information is incorrect or misleading. In Virginia, we've been hit hard with the opioid crisis. And many people, myself included, have pointed fingers at the drug manufacturers and say, it's their fault, they pushed this so they could make more money. Are there concerns that the need to turn a profit or make a bigger profit will also cause problems with people trusting the vaccine development and distribution process with the soon-to-be-released COVID vaccine? Sure. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that many of the circulating arguments against the COVID vaccines are about exactly that. Distrust in pharma companies, concern about profit motives, concerns about patents and intellectual property. I think that both nationally and globally, the pressure for pharmaceutical companies to behave well in this moment is intense, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that there is so much attention on arguments right now about equity and access and making sure that vulnerable populations can get the vaccine no matter where they live, that in this case, I think we'll probably be okay. Um, and I, I think the pharmaceutical companies are doing what they can to refute those concerns. But I do absolutely think that the opioid crisis has undermined trust in systems and in pharmaceutical companies um, in ways that are frustrating. But I think that in this case, there is so much focus on issues around who will get the vaccine and how and its safety that it's pretty well bounded. Are there other factors reinforcing the theory that we can't trust our doctors and our hospitals because they will profit off the COVID vaccine? Um, sure. I These are kind of long-standing narratives that sometimes veer into conspiracy and sometimes don't. Um, distrust in medical authority is also an incredibly old issue and sort of since doctors have been a profession um, that has been around. I think that in this case, most people are very, again, most people are very focused on ensuring equitable access in ways that help, but I'm also not sure that it's possible to undo hundreds of years of mistrust in medical systems as quickly as we'd like to. So if you don't trust your doctor and you don't trust leading public health officials such as Dr. Fauci, who do you trust? So, very good question. And it, it really depends on the person. Um, for a lot of people, they trust their churches. For others, they trust politicians that they have deep belief and faith in. Um, and for some, it's alternative health practitioners who they have been following for quite a while. And I think that many, not all, but many of those organizations and individuals have real potential power to help their communities by helping them understand the COVID vaccine and how they can protect their par parishioners or followers, whether that's a politician or someone on social media, by helping them evaluate their individual risks. And a statistic you cite in the book is that 40% of Americans 
say that even if there is a COVID vaccine, they will not get vaccinated no matter what. Is there anything public health officials can do to address that gap? Yeah, that stat makes me very sad. Um, yeah, I, I think there are things that public health professionals can do. And the field of public health has put a lot of time and research into thinking about communication, particular, particularly around vaccines. I think that what we need the most right now is clear and consistent information from public health officials, from politicians, from the companies that are making the vaccines. I think that we need to be really careful about making any real comments about safety or efficacy until all the data about the vaccines is out. Right now, most of the information we have is from press releases. And I think that it would be better if particularly public health people hold off on making any concrete statements about the vaccines until all the data has been made public. Now, that doesn't include saying things like, this press release looks really hopeful. The, the recent releases from both Pfizer and Modernity do give me hope that these vaccines are safe and effective and will really help control this pandemic. But I think we need to be very cautious about how we communicate and make sure that we clearly communicate what the data does and does not say and try to explain that to everyone where they are, whether that's someone who is super gung-ho about the vaccine and really excited, or someone who's going, I don't know, this, this was fast, and I'm not sure that I trust these press releases. So I, th I think our communication about the emergency use authorizations and the data that will become public as those move forward is going to be really important. Now, when researching potential topics for this podcast, a friend of mine had suggested that I interview you. And I will be honest, my immediate reaction was, what does all this have to do with rural health? <laughs> and, and she told me to ask you. So, from your perspective, what does anything have to do with health in our rural communities? I mean, I think that in particular in the United States right now, health has everything to do with rural communities. Um, and anything that affects the health of the nation affects rural communities more. Um, as rural health systems have come apart, that has become a clear differentiation in the U.S. in a way that is deeply frustrating and upsetting. It is also true that many of the conspiracies that I have seen right now say things like the vaccine will only be given to cities because there are more people there and that rural communities will be ignored. That is not the plan in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's going to be a while before the whole population gets the vaccine because we need to vaccinate healthcare workers first. But obviously, rural healthcare workers are included in healthcare workers and should get the vaccine in that first round of 
not as many doses as we're going to need. But I think that many of these conspiracies play on fears of being invisible to systems or being left behind by modern technologies or being targeted by modern technologies in ways that particularly play on the concerns of some rural communities. And I think that it's not entirely unreasonable for those communities to worry about being left behind. So digging deeper, the book references the apocalypse, the new world <laughs> order, the rise of militias, and Bill Gates. Do, do people addressing health in our rural communities really need to be thinking about all these things? How does someone like Bill Gates even factor in? <laughs> um, Bill Gates is at the center of so many conspiracy theories that you could write a book entirely just about the many conspiracy theories about the Gates Foundation. So I think that it is worthwhile for healthcare providers to understand the misinformation and the conspiracy theories that their patients may be hearing because they can help pull them apart for their patients when it when they start to affect how they get healthcare or what they do to protect themselves, whether that's from COVID or from cancer. And so many of these conspiracy theories build these incredibly neat orderly structures with usually Gates as the big villain behind everything that hold together so nicely until someone starts asking real questions about the how and the why would someone do that without actually attacking the person who believes them. And I think healthcare providers have some pretty good training in asking questions that way, because it's how at least people in public health are trained to ask questions about health behaviors. And so have a really good starting point to try to help people pick apart the things they're hearing from friends or seeing on social media around both the COVID vaccine and other healthcare issues. So you mentioned that, you know, it's important to not attack people who believe in some of these theories. You know, something that really struck me from the book was that, you know, I think a lot of us tend to be dismissive of people who believe some of these, quote, conspiracy theories as, you know, ignorant or uneducated. But the reality is, is, is some of the people, especially in the anti-vax movement, are very well educated. Absolutely. Um, you know, a 2015 study found that 55% of the people they interviewed believed at least one political conspiracy theory, and most believed more than one. And they only looked at 10 conspiracy theories. It is very true that humans like stories that hold together. And sometimes that leads us to believe things that 
are simply not real because we would much rather there was order in the world. The people who believe conspiracy theories or misinformation are not stupid and they are not crazy, put that in quotes. Um, They believe narratives that the rest of us don't see But simply looking at someone and saying, no, I think you're wrong and I think you're dumb for thinking that does no good because it doesn't engage the person in a way that gives them space to think about what they believe. I believe that one of the best ways to talk to my more conspiratorial-minded friends, because yes, I have several, is to ask them questions about why they believe the various parts of the stories they tell me, which parts of them they think are practical, and also to ask them what they're afraid of, right? What about this conspiracy explains something that they're worried about or that scares them or that they think is happening and nobody's noticing? And I've had pretty good luck with that technique And at the very least, it keeps them talking to me so that I can keep trying to get them to think about some of the weirder things that they think are true. And if a healthcare provider wanted to address a patient's concerns about the upcoming COVID vaccine or any vaccine, what could that person do? I think the first place to start is asking the person what they're worried about rather than assuming that any of us know what someone's worried about, really just asking that question and letting them explain. I think that talking through the information about the vaccines, obviously once all of it is available, is really important. And talking to people about both individual and community risk in a way that acknowledges their concerns. So I think that many of us tend to look at people and say, just go get vaccines. Like, why on earth would you not do this? Just do it. But in reality, that's not a very useful way of convincing people or understanding what's going on with them. So I think asking the questions is probably the best starting point possible. And last question that I ask all of my guests If you could do anything to improve health and healthcare in rural America, what would you do? It's not about conspiracy theories, though. That's Um, good. Fix funding for rural hospital systems, because unless we rebuild our rural hospital systems and primary care networks, I don't think we can address the ever-expanding issues in rural health. Great. Thank you, Anna. That's Anna Muldoon promoting revision in the rural hospital payment structure. Links to the book COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories can be found in the show notes. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you join the Rural Health Voice Conference. You can purchase a ticket to the full event or select individual speakers. Visit vrha.org and click the events tab for details. Make sure you get your flu shot. 
This year's been unreal. Now school for kids is laptops in the living room. Coronavirus turned everything upside down. But we still have to remember important stuff like getting flu shots. Why's that? In uncertain times, getting a flu shot is something we can control. It's one less health worry for our family. You're right. I read the flu causes thousands of deaths and millions of doctor visits each year. All right, then. We're getting family flu shots, and we'll tell our friends they should, too. Flu shots are more important than ever this year. This ad sponsored by the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association.